We are just one week away from the first Labour conference under the leadership of Keir Starmer, and there are already debates raging about a potential incoming stitch-up. The two big controversies concern which rule changes the party's ruling body will recommend to conference and which policy proposals will be debated. On the rule changes, according to Labour list, the NEC will propose the following. For representatives and candidates, they will propose waivers to the one-year membership requirement. That's going to be delegated to the NEC as it sees fit. They will also mandate compulsory training for any member standing for selection and suggest a new power for the NEC to discipline candidates or representatives for having acted in a way considered prejudicial and grossly detrimental to the party. There are also rule changes concerning members. They include a probationary period of provisional membership during which time an application for members can be rejected for any reason which the General Secretary sees fit. Um, That rule is probably what's seen as most worrying. Many believe that means the leadership will be able to purge people automatically if they join in any or to vote in any future leadership election, I should say. The second controversy relates to policy. In particular, many have expressed outrage that the Conference Arrangements Committee have decided to rule out of order a motion put forward by the group Labour for a Green New Deal. The motion was submitted by 21 local Labour parties and backed by Momentum. It called for mass investment in green technologies, the expansion and electrification of public transport, including free local bus networks, a just climate adaptation, investing in fire and rescue services, flood defences and resilient infrastructure, retrofitting all homes by 2030 with mandatory building standards and universal basic services, including a national care service and universal free broadband. The Conference Arrangement Committee said this had been ruled out of order because it covers more than one subject. So it won't be voted on. It won't be heard by conference. Aaron, Momentum have called the rule changes a bureaucratic stitch up and the ruling out of the Green New Deal motion, a disgraceful rejection of our responsibility to each other and to future generations. Do you think they're right? Yeah, there's two questions here. So the first is about, you know, the the discretionary powers being given to the NEC and to, to David Evans. I think in particular, what's most sort of brazen in its mendacity and lying and political hypocrisy is the fact that there will be these people who can come in, and I, I, I don't really see a problem with this, who can come in and can become candidates without having previously been Labour Party members. That's fine. It's consistent. You can see why somebody would do it. You could argue Corbyn should have done it. How is that consistent, however, with this being the same party political faction, people like Luke Akehurst and so on, who previously said, well, sorry, in 2016, you can't vote in the leadership election because you haven't been a member for more than uh, six months. And so clearly there is an instrumentalization here, a politicking going on here, where when things aren't in their favor, they'll do one thing. The minute it is in their favor, they'll do the complete opposite. I say that and I start with that because it then leads us on to uh, the Green New Deal and climate change. Luke Akehurst will happily, and people like him, his fellow travellers, Labour First, David Evans, and, and quite frankly, Keir Starmer, people on the Labour right, when this is happening, I think anybody who's supporting Keir Starmer, not, I'm not saying that anybody who doesn't think he should be gotten rid of is supporting Keir Starmer, but active support of Keir Starmer, I think he's doing a good job. I think at this point, you have to say, you're, you're, you can't be on the left. You can't be. If you're not going to have a meaningful policy on, on climate change, you're not on the left. And I, you know, it does, does encompass, I think, Starmer supporters in, in the media, right? People that we might think of as on the soft left. Zoe Williams, Paul Mason, the people that backed him previously. I don't know if Tom Kibassi or, or, or Laura Parker still backs him. I don't know. I, I suspect not with these policies, but if they do with these policies, particularly on climate change, you have to really question left credentials. There's no need to get personal here. I, I personally don't think they do. I think Starmer's turning off many, many people with this, but that's kind of where we are right now. I think we're looking at a very, very surprisingly hard right Labour Labour project. I didn't expect it to be quite honest, particularly on climate, because that's an issue which can elide class. But what we see on climate change reflects the previous point I made around sort of this uh, politicking around certain things. And I think people like Akehurst and the Labour right will happily talk about climate change if they think it's going to help them. Frankly, however, they have absolutely zero real interest in doing anything about it. And some of the names I just listed previously as the supporters of Keir Starmer, I think clearly do. I think many people who voted for him clearly do. Uh, And so I think this is a real moment of fundamental realisation 
about what the Starmer project is, the Starmer leadership is, both in terms of how it wants to basically railroad things through the party, centralize the party, completely get rid of democratic policymaking. You know, you know, 2019, at 2019 conference, policymaking was being driven from the bottom up, whether it was the Brexit policy, you can agree or disagree, whether it was on the Green New Deal, whether it was on primary uh, private schools, you know, it was being driven by members. That's gone. And then secondly, on climate change, you know, frankly, I think they're well to the right, even of people like Joe Biden. And I think anybody who's moderately progressive looks at that and thinks, my God, this man probably isn't who I thought he is. I don't think we really disagree on the motivations of Keir Starmer and the people around him. The argument that the, the conference arrangement committee have made, so they're the group of people who decide what does get voted on at conference. So they've said this motion just covered too many things. So it wasn't just about climate change because it also promised free broadband for everyone. So they said it was it was essentially just putting lots of the 2019 manifesto into one motion about climate change. Do you think there's anything to that at all? Well, there's a few inconsistencies here. So other motions were submitted by affiliate organizations, not by CLPs, including trade unions, which looked like this, you know, um, and, and they've gone through. So I don't agree with that. I think you probably could take out, for instance, the National Care Service. Other than the National Care Service aspect, I don't see why this would be stopped. And we're talking about climate change, Michael. So addressing climate change in the Green New Deal it is about rewilding. It is about reducing uh, CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. It is about you know, building zero carbon infrastructure for the future. It is about retrofitting the built environment to make it more energy efficient. I thought that was actually, because you saw the, the, the spin coming out again from people like Luke Aitkirst and Twitter, Twitter, you actually read what it's saying. I thought it was actually, it was surprisingly pithy. Okay, you, maybe you want to take out the national, I think we should have a national care service, but maybe take that out. But other than that, I thought it was entirely coherent. And uh, Let's see what Labour First are putting forward with theirs. And they're saying there's no targets, no numbers involved. You've got to have targets. Christ almighty, Michael. Look at the summer we've just had. You've got to have targets in any, in any policy proposal around the Green New Deal. You can't just have vague ambitions. We'd like to do this. We'd like to do that. It's not the 1990s anymore. You know, we're seeing high 40s in, in, in the Arctic, in Canada, right? We're seeing record wildfires across Siberia, California, Southern Europe. We saw in China, you know, a year's worth of rain, I think, fell in three hours in one place. Uh, and these extreme weather events are becoming more frequent, more intense. You, you can't have vague aspirations. Be serious. And, and mm. there's, an important, there's an important line in, in, in management. You can't manage what you don't measure. And you can't measure what you don't you know, sort of quantify. So if you've got a climate proposal, like the Labour right, with no numbers, quite frankly, it's not worth the paper it's written on. I mean, I, I'd potentially say, I mean, you probably can have a Green New Deal without free broadband. But at the same time, it does, it does seem I agree that. You know, pretty pretty factional to just say this is a left-wing campaign group we're going to throw it out altogether instead of you know try and change it to something the leadership find a bit more acceptable let's move on to the other dramatic clash which is going to happen at conference this will be on its first day that's when there'll be a vote on whether to confirm david evans as general secretary he's controversial because of the many spurious expulsions which have been handed out to left-wing party members since he took charge both John McDonnell and Luke Akehurst, who is chair of the right-wing faction Labour First, spoke to Radio 4 about the conflict regarding Evans. The best thing to Akira and David Evans to do is get people around the table, accept the, that there are grievances there that have to be addressed. But to be frank, I think he does lack an element of political experience. He hasn't been in politics that long. So therefore, I think what he needs to do is just engage more. But Luke Akehurst insists that Keir Starmer would have nothing to fear from engaging in a public battle. I think it's absolutely absurd. The most extraordinary demonisation of, of David Evans is going on. I am sure that they will force a vote, and I welcome that because it will expose the rather low level of support that they have. So Luke Akehurst is very confident that if that vote does take place, David Evans will win it handily. Obviously, this will come down to the, the political persuasions of the delegates who get elected, will they be on the left or the right of the party, and then also how the trade unions vote for background information at Labour Party conference. Votes are 50% trade unions, 50% members, and in the trade unions, they're weighted to the number of affiliated members they have. So, so unions such as Unite and Unison and GMB are central. Aaron, are you as convinced as, as Luke Akehurst is that the right will easily win this one and David Evans would be confirmed? Yeah, I think I think they would. I, I don't see why he wouldn't be confirmed. I mean, I don't think he should be confirmed. I was having this debate with um, Andrew Fisher on Twitter, former advisor to John McDonnell, and you know, there's the argument: well, the left shouldn't call for him to not be confirmed if you can't win it. 
put that to one side. If the guy is put forward to a vote, do you think he should be the general secretary or not? And I think going on the evidence of the last 12 years, he is terrible. And so, no, I don't think whether you're a trade unionist, whether you're a CLP delegate, you should be voting for somebody who's not very good at the job. I mean, maybe that's a really radical idea, Michael. Somebody who's laying off staff, didn't liaise properly with trade unions to the extent that they were considering strike action during conference. They're losing money hand over fist. They made payouts it need to make. Uh, it's not an effective organization. It's done very poorly in elections, quite frankly. Uh, and look, the, the organization under, under Jeremy Corbyn was often a mess, but had lots of money, growing membership. It had two good sets of local elections. It was building in new competencies and it was formulating policy. I don't see any of that with David Evans. And what I would say is it's fantastic that there's going to be a vote on David Evans becoming the general secretary. That's good. And I don't think that's because the left are going to win. I think it's because it's really important that all those people say, I want that guy as, I think he should be elected, by the way. They say, I want that guy as general secretary. Because then if he's terrible and if he continues on the same path, wasting the money of the GMB, wasting the money of Unison, wasting the money of other trade unions and, and fundamentally all members, all members' subs, then those people are accountable for it. Great. That's what you should do. And, and, and to that extent, I, I, you know, I'm surprised that something like Unison and GMB would vote in somebody who is clearly wasting their money to such an extraordinary extent, but let them do it. And then that's in the record book. And you say, next time it goes up, up, you know, we want a general secretary to do X, Y, Z. Well, last time you backed this guy and he was terrible. He he didn't help with policy formulation. The electoral results weren't great. We lost money. We lost members. Maybe let's not listen to the people that made that decision last time. So I think it's good to have all this stuff out in the open. Equally, if he does well, then the unions that back him, the CLPs that back him say, look, we were right. Why not have it out in the open? I don't understand this, which is why I backed an, an elected general secretary two years ago. And uh, that drew a great deal of opprobrium from from the left and some Corbyn supporters because they thought the left was going to control the party forever. And so they could fix things bureaucratically and it didn't really matter. You don't need, need to democratize the party. Well, sadly, they were wrong. I mean, it's not something I wanted to be right about, uh, but here we are. So I think the more that's done that out in the open, the more that's accountable, the more it's transparent, the better. That's good. It's not just good because it's democratic. It leads to better outcomes in the long term. I didn't see your, your conversation with Andrew Fisher on Twitter. Was it, we should say it was a Corbyn advisor more recently than it was a, a McDonnell one. Sorry, yes. But I, I suppose that there, are, there are two issues, aren't there? So one is, should people vote against David Evans? Absolutely. Obviously, he's a terrible general secretary. You're talking about you know, the financial situation he's left the party in. More importantly, I think for, for most members is the amount of people he's expelled on very, very mm. spurious grounds. He's obviously an incredibly factional operator with no care for for members' rights or, or creating an inclusive party. Uh, the other issue, though, is how big a deal do you make about a vote which you're likely to lose? And that's where I saw some sort of controversy about McDonnell and what he'd said on Radio 4. Because as I understand it, his interventions seem to be motivated by an idea, look, the Labour right will probably win that vote because of big unions such as Unison and GMB. So it would be unwise for the left to make a big deal out of this vote. So sure, vote against David Evans, but don't make a, an all or nothing contest out of it and i suppose that's why, doing he, that. that's why he's trying to sort of downplay the significance of it a bit and saying no yeah. let's have a meeting Nobody with keir starmer instead a meeting with keir starmer, keir starmer doesn't give two hoots what I mean, john mcdonald thinks he's not going to have a summit with the left which is what also you know i think john mcdonald still john mcdonald still thinks it's like 2018 and he's got these you know it's a it's, a, it's like you're playing risk and he's moving his pieces around the the board of you know the map of the world john's pieces have left evans is expelling them right all the social power of the left lies in its membership and these people are leaving because they're not being offered any leadership. So I, I don't really agree with John. I think this kind of attitude he's got of just constantly deferring to people and calling it strategy, I think is wrong. On the other hand, I do agree that, of course, it shouldn't be made to be a big issue. It's not a big issue. You would do it knowing the right's going to win. But I think the point is, well, okay, then explicitly back this guy and say he's going to do a good job and make the case for him. Because right now, after a year, we've not seen it. I don't see what the, the harm in that is. When, when has it been a bad thing to say, well, look, there are questions over this guy. Let's have a vote. Mm. I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I should say, I suppose, I mean, I, I think in defense of John McDonough, I think he, he knows he's dealing, you know, he, he's building strategy with a bad hand. So, so calling for members to rise up against David Evans, calling for a meeting with Keir Starmer, in a way, the left is quite weak at the moment. So neither of them are going to turn out particularly well. So I, I kind of sit on the fence as to to which one to go for. We'll try not to be as depressing as this when, when the conference actually starts. There will, of course, um, be the very dynamic 
and historically wonderful the World Transform Festival. Tiskisau will be doing two live shows from there on the Saturday and the Sunday. Marsha de Cordova has resigned as Shadow Equality's secretary in the most high-profile resignation yet from Starmer's top team. De Cordova announced her resignation in a tweet. She wrote, It has been an immense privilege to serve as the Shadow Women and Equality secretary for the past 17 months. It therefore comes with much sadness that I am resigning with immediate effect. Having only been elected in 2017 for the historically marginal constituency of Battersea, I would like to focus more of my time and efforts on the people of Battersea. I will continue to support Keir Starmer from the backbenches. That tweet doesn't make the resignation sound particularly contentious. That was a, a very polite resignation tweet, but according to an article in The Voice, there were political disagreements underlying the Cordova's decision. They report. Associates of Battersea MP claim that the party failed to put her on a single media round during 17 months in the job and that she was offered just five minutes speaking time at Labour's annual conference, which takes place next week. Sources said that efforts to set up a task force of experts to design progressive race equality policy were held back over concerns this might upset red wall voters and that Starmer had resisted pleas to make a speech setting out his vision to black communities. They also quote a friend of de Cordova who told The Voice, it's been bubbling for a while. She just wasn't being supported in the bottom line was you can only do so much before it becomes difficult. And it did become very difficult. She always had a goal that she wanted Keir to speak authentically about race. And despite her trying, it just was never going to happen. Marsha wanted to develop Labour's vision for race equality, but kept meeting stumbling blocks, even to just put out comments on things. It was watered down, you know, challenging the Prime Minister. You're not allowed to do that. It's the people around Starmer, his team. They don't understand race or the importance of it. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. This resignation hasn't received too much coverage in, in the press. You might think this would you know, create some negative coverage around Keir Starmer. It hasn't <clears> really made a ripple. Do you think this is a big deal? You know, it is a big deal, and it's also because it's, it's part of a broader pattern. And people might not know that because it's barely being talked about. Um, you had, about a year ago now, Emma Hardy pull back from the shadow cabinet to focus on her constituency. It's in Hull, I believe. It's a leave voting constituency. The reason why is because she thinks she might lose it. You're going to see that more and more. Uh, then a few weeks ago, you saw something similar with Luke Pollard taking a step back. Uh, you're seeing Marsh, these are all for different reasons, of course. Now you're seeing Marsh to Cordova stepping back. Uh, you're seeing uh, moves with Charlotte Nichols. I don't quite know the full story here. I've not heard the full story, but she's been moved effectively by mutual agreement, as I understand it. And what this would suggest to you is the poor polling, the, 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 the sort of enmity towards Keir Summer from big parts of the membership, not all of it, but from big parts of the membership. And then you've got people who should be your allies. You know, Marsha de Cordova, she, she nominated Keir Starmer to be Labour leader. You know, she's on the left, but she nominated Keir Starmer to be Labour leader. And as I understand it, her major misgivings about Starmer are, as identified in this voice article, one, he's nowhere on race, absolutely nowhere on race. And then two, he he is kind of apparently, or the people around him, and you know, people always say the people around him as if it's some sort of, some court, you know, the monarch's never to blame, it's always the courtiers. They want to basically just completely eviscerate the left and get them out of the party. That's their number one priority. And I think for anybody who looks at the climate, who looks at Black Lives Matter, who looks at the housing crisis, who looks at COVID-19, that is insane. It looks ridiculous and crazy. They don't want to be a part of that. And I don't think you have to be on the left or you know, a radical to think that. And so I think, I think Marsha saw that. She saw the race stuff. And I think she's, she's taking a step back. And I don't think she'll lose her seat, but I think... That seat in Battersea wasn't Labour until 2017, so she will have to work to keep it. And, you know, people think, oh, well, Starmer's going to keep all of Labour's voters from 2019. In, in big cities, I, I personally don't think he will. Uh, and I think she'll have a reduced majority. And so I think there's that calculus too, like with Emma Hardy. So we'll, we'll see. I think it is a big story because I think if you've got people who two years out from an election that's looking at 2023 uh, are already saying, I can't serve in the shadow cabinet, well, you get quite a small talent pool in the end for Labour. Uh, and I think that plus the race side of this, big story. You know, this stuff just isn't being covered by by The Guardian, by the liberal left press. 
because they don't really care. They don't really care about these things, just that they don't really care about climate change, quite frankly. But it is, I think it is a big story. And I think, I think something's going on under the surface, Michael. I think there's many, many, many people within the Parliamentary Labour Party who have big misgivings about Starmer and the people around him, particularly on policy, particularly on comms. You've had the whole team effectively swept out after Batley and Spen. People don't really know who these other people are. And if you're in a constituency with a 1,500, 2,000 majority, you're going to be thinking, oh, these people might lose me my job. And I think there's a lot of MPs thinking like that right now. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I was thinking about this today because on the one hand, I think the reason, yeah, the, the Guardian, et cetera, aren't making a big deal about this is because they don't enjoy criticizing Keir Starmer in the same way they enjoyed criticizing Jeremy Corbyn. At the same time, you might ask, if Marsha de Cordova has these critiques, why not include that in the tweet? You know, because, because it would have been harder to ignore then, wouldn't it? Why do you think we've got this situation where the voice have been briefed that this was about political disagreements, and then the MP has officially said, oh, actually, this is because I want to spend more time in my constituency. H how would someone make sense of that? Well, the way I read it is, and this could be wrong, you know, she's only been an MP for four years. People say Starmer's an experience. She's only been an MP for four years. And I think she resigned. She didn't want it to be messy. <clears throat> I think it's easy if, you, if you're just basically seeking re-election, go to the backbenches. You don't want to cause a drama. But the reality is, if you resign, people, if you don't say why you've resigned, people will create reasons as to why you've resigned. And you have to say why you've resigned. Uh, so you get claims about, well, it was racism. Oh, it's because she's on the left. It's because of LGBT stuff. As I understand, it, it's got nothing to do with LGBT stuff. I mean, I, that could, I might be wrong. But like, she, like you say, she's not directly stated why she's leaving. My understanding is uh, about Starmer's position on race and the fact that basically the people around him aren't serious about power, they're serious about eviscerating the left. Uh, but like I say, I think she, she should state it quite clearly. You don't need to be mean and, 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 and aggressive and belligerent. But like I say, if you don't give your reasons, somebody else will. And they may, they may not be true. Uh, so you need to tell your own side of the story. There are obviously a number of reasons why, as a newish MP, you wouldn't just want to come out and say, I'm resigning, I'm now declaring war on, on Keir Starmer. So I can, I can also see the other side of the argument, which is to sort of step down quietly and, and bide your time. Let's go on to our next story. The Daily Telegraph, the Tories' newspaper of choice, is reporting that we could be in line for an early general election. They quote Oliver Dowden, who has just been made co-chair of the Conservatives, as telling staff, it's time to go to our offices and prepare the next election. They report that while the working assumption inside number 10 is that Boris Johnson will go to the country in May or June 2024, the Telegraph understands he is also eyeing up a year earlier. So that would be May or June 2023. The rumours about an early election come as the Tories retake the lead in opinion polls. In a survey released today by YouGov, the Tories are up six points on last week to 39%, while Labour have stood still on 35 I fought Carl Chauvin today, who used to work for Corbyn, now works for Salvation, had a very interesting take on this. He said, This is now becoming fixed into the political weather unless Labour does something fundamental to change the cycle. When the Conservatives do something bad, Labour catches up for a few days, sits back, and within days, it's back to normal normal being the Conservatives in the lead. Aaron, do you reckon we'll have an election um, earlier than it otherwise would have been? So we're, we're definitely going to have one by 2024. Rumours now that it will be in 2023. And will it matter when it is in terms of who's going to be in a stronger position to win it? Such a hard question, Michael. Such a hard question. You know, some of it is based on contingency. You know, Gordon Brown looked at an early general election then decided against it. Ultimately, that, that probably cost him winning the election. If you look at the economics right now, I think 2023 makes more sense. Then we're going to come out of a, we're going to go basically now into a mini boom because obviously there's loads of pent up demand in the global economy. You're seeing it with supply chain issues, you know, demand's outstripping supply. We can't find enough workers to do certain jobs. So wages are going up. Of course, that's going to lead to some price rises too. We're seeing inflation for basic, basic commodities. But what you're going to see is quite a rare thing in the next 12 months, which is lots of new jobs, wage increases, lots of final demand for the consumer. That's kind of rare, that all coming together. So I, I think it would make sense to call an election sooner rather than later. Of course, you want to have COVID well and truly behind you. I personally don't think COVID is going to be well and truly behind us by, say, next spring. I think it's very possible this winter goes very, very badly wrong. It might not. 
you know, we were saying by now we might have 100,000 new cases a day. Turns out it's about 35,000. I want to be wrong, but I think there's a, there's a major possibility that the government have got this very, very, very badly uh, wrong again this winter, just like last year. Not as bad, but bad, pretty bad. The ceiling is much lower because, of course, the majority of the adult population has been vaccinated, but it's, it's still, it still could be very, very bad. So I think 2023 sounds reasonable. And you're looking at Starmer. Maybe you want him to carry on as long as possible because you just want the Labour Party to tear itself apart. But then you've also got the issues of Scotland, of Wales. Hard one. I think 2023 is the most reasonable one, however. I think that's the most sensible. Have, have, have let's say, 18 months of normality uh, post-COVID and this little mini economic boom. That would work. I mean, the other thing this will affect, because it, I mean, it's very difficult to guess, isn't it? The reason Gordon Brown postponed an election in, tw- in 2007, I think it was, because he got cold feet about different taxes which are being proposed. Then obviously the financial crisis happened and Labour were screwed after that. So, so it could be that Boris Johnson says, oh, I'll hold off till 2024. And then, you know, we get another yeah. massive economic crisis, which he wasn't foreseeing. Something which is potentially more guessable, I suppose, in terms of what it will have impact on is the internal politics of the Labour Party. Because if we think at this point, you know, odds are the Conservatives are going to win the next general election. It could be quite significant whether or not Keir Starmer and David Evans have 18 months to reshape the Labour Party in their image, or whether they have two and a half years. So, so there might be people in Labour HQ who are really interested in what timetable they are being given to transform the Labour Party. Potentially, if there hadn't been a snap election in, in, in 2019, Corbyn and, and Jenny Formby would have been able to to transform the Labour Party to a, to a to a greater degree, so that it couldn't just get retaken by the right and them them stitch it up to basically expel anyone they didn't like. So so it could be that this snap election, if it does happen, undermines Keir Starmer's attempt to to lock out the left forever. Yeah, there's a nice symmetry there, but I don't think Keir Starmer's going anywhere. I think Keir Starmer could be absolutely decimated. And he wouldn't, I think he could do far worse than 2019 and he'd still stay in place. What's going what's gonna to change? What would matter is decisively Unison GMB, the trade unions, the media will cover his ass. Of course, you know, that it could be that the, the defeat is so big, and I don't think it would be. I think that Labour, I think Labour would generally speaking keep the same as what they got, 32%, probably more. Of course, the problem is where, where is that going to come from? And you could see them losing a few seats in the Northeast. You could see them losing a few more seats in the West Midlands. Overnight, for instance, look, it's just one council by election. But the, the Labour candidate got walloped, a good candidate, I'm told, in, in Middlesbrough. And the Labour vote down, went down something like 38%. Okay, it's just one council by-election, but clearly something important is happening in the North East. We saw it with Hartlepool too. Uh, and so I think Labour could get 32 33%, same as last time, maybe even a bit better. But, you know, actually, they don't pick any seats up in Scotland. They don't pick any seats up in, in, in Wales, uh, particularly with um, boundary changes. They'll actually lose seats regardless of performance, really. And they'll they'll lose seats in the West Midlands and in the Northeast. And the real net beneficiaries in terms of vote share, not necessarily seats, vote share, would be the Lib Dems in, in the south of England. Under those conditions, I, I, I kind of struggle to see how he would stay on, but I think his ambition would be to stay on. And I think the people around him would very predictably say, well, Neil Kinnock had two bites of the cherry. Christ. Jeremy Corbyn had two bites of the cherry. Well, he had the second go because 2017 was a success. So I suppose, I suppose for Starmer, if he gets anything above 32%, he can say, well, I've earned my, my opportunities to stay. And I think that's a, that's a fair thing to say. I wouldn't agree with it. I think ultimately it comes down to seats. If he loses seats and the vote share stays the same, I think he has to go. But who's going to push him, Michael? Who's going to push him? John McDonnell? The Guardian newspaper? Unison, the trade union? Nobody, no, no. So I don't really know. I don't know what's going to happen. Members are going to leave? He wants members to leave. You know, so it's a really tough one to sort of predict. I think ultimately it's going to come down to if he's embarrassed, yes, he will need to go. And also fundamentally, the party runs out of money. You know, if the big donors don't come back and the big donors aren't going to come back if the party is clearly in a downward spin, even after 2019, and you don't have the members and trade unions kind of recognize that this isn't really where they are maximizing resources, then I think he, he probably would be pushed out. Ultimately, MPs are not going to back a guy who they think are making them particularly vulnerable. And so if more and more MPs think he's going to lose their seats at the next time of asking, yeah, he'll go. But I, I think they're probably planning to lose the next election. I think that is the plan. And he'll be staying in place. The issue is that, yeah, who's going to push? I mean, I do think that probably, you know, if he did lose a general election, I think John McDonnell and the Socialist Campaign Group would mount a challenge. Potentially, if he just lost an election as well, you would be able to get some of the soft left MPs in and, and trigger a leadership election. So, 
it's not impossible that he would be toppled. I don't think he would resign of his own accord, but you could imagine the situations where a leadership challenge happens and it will, you know, it will depend to what degree Evans and Starmer have by that point in time managed to stitch up the internal politics of the Labour Party so that a left winger can't possibly win again. I imagine that's going to be, you know, the real story about this conference and next year's conference is them making sure that if and when Keir Starmer loses a leadership election, if there is to be a challenge, he will either win or be replaced by someone from the same wing of the party. Oh, let's go on to our next story. After months of speculation this week, Andrew Neil quit as lead presenter and chairman of GB News. His first media appearance after making the announcement was on BBC's Question Time. This is how he explained his decision. In the run-up to the launch, through the launch, and in the aftermath of the launch, and I think most of you have heard anything about it will know that you couldn't follow the, the launch under startling success, uh, more and more differences emerged between myself and the other senior managers and the board of GV News. And rather than these differences narrowing, they got wider and wider. And I felt it was best that if that's the route they wanted to take, then that's up to them. That's, and what it's was their that? money. What was that route? And uh, well, the route is what I think is what you can see on GV News at, at the moment. People should make up their own minds as to whether that's what they want to watch. I thought it wasn't for me. And I, I had wanted a different route. Doesn't mean I'm right, they're wrong, but it certainly was a difference. And is it I, because you felt they were going too far to the right? I, I also spent the summer looking at all no, the No, I'm work asking, I had is been, it that you felt they were going too far to the right? People should make up their own minds on that. No, but we're just all wondering I'm, why you What, what I've told you is that the differences were such that the direction they were going in was not the di direction that I had outlined. It was not the direction that I had envisaged for the channel. Uh, and, but I was in minority of one. So it's doing what it's doing, and it's up to them. Good luck to them if that's what they want to do. But it wasn't going to be with me. You know, lockdown and the summer and all the rest of it made us rethink uh, our priorities as well. And I decided, too, it was time I had to cut down on some of my commitments and uh, perhaps maybe enjoy myself a little bit more. Now, even get to appear on question time every now and then, which I haven't done for two decades. Uh, and that given that these differences as emerged, these disagreements, of the direction of the channel and the way it was going, and many other things too, I don't want to bore you with, it seemed to me that one of the commitments I should give up is GB News. And that's what I've done. I'm very comfortable with it. Indeed, I feel at peace with myself. As a result, I, people know my kind of journalism, and that's what I'm going to stick to. People know my kind of journalism, and that's what I'm going to stick to. The implication is clear. Andrew Neil wanted to launch a channel that was independent-minded and freed from the stifling culture of the BBC, but he had no intention of creating a Farage-fronted far-right outlet spreading misinformation about COVID and inciting hatred against asylum seekers. By leaving, he is now at peace with himself. How noble of Andrew Neil. Thankfully, that self-serving account given by Neil did not go unchallenged on Question Time. This was the response of author Nels Abbey. So I know there's a cabinet reshuffle going on, and I've had to do my own too. So I came with something from my own cabinet or so. And it's just... Um, what does that say? We can't see it here on the panel. You might, might remember these days or so. So it says, um, why Britain's new TV news channel won't be woke? So, and I thought to myself, I'd just bring that along. And um, for the benefit of those at home, also, I bought a bigger copy too. So there we go. So Andrew can. Andrew so you, can you might have to. Not so. everyone is familiar with GB News, so you might have to explain I why you brought that. So GB News. Oh, sorry, with GB. Um, everybody's not familiar with GB News. It's a, well. Okay. So the viewing figures would suggest that not everyone is. Familiar. Absolutely, you're right. Absolutely, they are zero. For, they're kind of close to zero um, viewers on an ongoing basis, for a long time now. GB News was set up as it says over here in black and white, and a channel that was intended to not be quote-unquote woke. That it was going to be a channel that was going to fight the quote-unquote culture wars. I posited to you, Andrew, that you actually knew exactly what you guys were setting up. That you were setting, when you used the term like woke as a pejorative, I put it to you that you knew exactly who the, that dog whistle, you exactly knew the dog you were, blew the, you were blowing that whistle at. So why am I not still there? 
You, that's up to you. Well, why were you there to begin with if, when you're if doing you're, that? If you're saying that what's happened is what I wanted, why would I not? Why would I be here tonight and not still? Because I think. Well, up, I'll give you my I reason. Mean, you don't right? know me. Uh, no, no, I'll give you my reason. And, and, I'll, give you, you, you I'll are, give you my perception. You're assuming things of which you have no knowledge well, whatsoever. Well, I'll give you my perception of how I view things. So, so I think GB oh, you're News. Oh, you I'll give you. My, I, I think GB News, when it launched up, was actually a very, very shoddy um, platform. So it came out. It was embarrassing to watch. Um, to um, to Beatrice, it's not going to be Fox News. It's not Fox News by any means. Fox News actually has very, very decent production values or so and very well thought through programming. GB News is by no means whatsoever Fox News. It's actually a very inferior product to almost anything on the market. But what we actually had, what GB News did represent is the exact same thing that Fox News represented, which was for the purpose of re-mainstreaming and maintaining a, almost a cocktail of bigotries within our nation. You can see how, how effective that attack line was because Andrew Neil resorted to, to accusing the speaker of prejudices. I hate to break it to Andrew Neil, but being a, a white man journalist who joins a right-wing outlet, that's not a protected characteristic. It, it's not prejudicial to make judgments about someone based on what that individual has said and done in the past. Aaron, did Nels Abbey hit the target there? Yeah, Michael, I think just following up from what you just said, it's not it's not prejudiced. He's not prejudging anything. <laughs> yeah. He's observing what you're doing and he's 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 making conclusions from his own observations. I mean, that's just judist. It's just the judging bit. There's no pre-involved. So I thought when he said, Oh, it's got even lower production values than Fox, and it cuts to Andrew Neil's face. I thought that's the one of the best moments of television I've seen in question time in a really, really long while. You could see he was seething. And I think the way that Neil started to at the start of that clip, <clears throat> when he starts talking about how we just want to take it in different directions, good luck to them, etc. When there's somebody like Andrew Neil from that generation with his politics, when they say good luck to them, it means <clears throat> for any, any any of our audience out there, listeners or viewers who aren't British, it means I really hope you fucking fail. That's what it means, good luck to them. So that's that's where we are, I think. It's a really strange, strange sort of way things have played out. I remember speaking to Andrew Neil a couple of years ago. Uh, you were there actually, Michael, and I did BBC this week. And you could see he wanted out of the BBC and he wanted to try something new. He's really fascinated by media as a, as a world. You know, he was previously involved in the Sunday Times, The Economist. And he wanted to do something over here, which was like Fox. He just did. Uh, the former, anyway, if not the politics. And it's just been so catastrophically pulled off. I, I, I kind of wonder, did he, did he think it was ever going to be any different? And, and that would be a really interesting interview. Um, I don't think it's about the politics. I, I agree with that conclusion. It's actually about just how shoddy and ramshackle it is. And that's a real affront to a man of, of Andrew Neil's sense of self. You know, he, he's worked for some of the most important media outlets in the world. He, he helped start up Sky News. By the way, he helped go and start up Fox News in the early days. Like I say, it was at the Sunday Times. Uh, he, he was previously um, at The Economist. He was, of course, working for the BBC, who I expect to take him back, by the way, with open arms. Expect Andrew Dill to be hosting the BBC's election coverage in 2023. Uh, and I think that's what hurt him most as somebody who likes to be associated with top production values. That wasn't happening at GB News. Well, was, I, I didn't know that. So Andrew Dill was involved in the creation of Fox News as well, was he? Yeah. So he was at the Sunday Times <clears throat> uh, from 83 to 92, something like that. He was, at the, he was at the Sunday Times the best part of 10 years. He doesn't replace is it Larry Evans, but he replaces the one after Larry Evans. You go from actually quite a progressive, interesting journalist to somebody else. And then I think it's Andrew Neil. Or maybe he directly replaces um, Larry Evans. I think it's Larry Evans. I've got David Evans in my head. It's not David Evans. It's Larry Evans, I think. Towards the end of that, Murdoch kind of, for some reason, just doesn't like him anymore, wants him out. And of course, Murdoch is starting at this point Sky News. So he says to Andrew Neil, like, why don't you go and help start this project up? Andrew Neil starts it up. He's not in front of camera, like you know Adam Bolton, but he's who, by the way, was there at the beginning. Uh, but he was sort of helping the whole project get going. And then after that, he says, "I I want to send you to America to work on 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 Fox News." So he he goes to work in uh, in New York, not for very long. I think six months, a year, something like that. Uh, so he was there right at the beginning of Fox News before it's this massive channel, uh, and and he had he had a role in 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 its initial growth for sure. Um, they piloted a few shows where he would be the anchor and so on, didn't work out. But he was the guy that had basically executed Sky News for Murdoch, who then went to the US and, and, and worked on Fox News. Because, of course, Murdoch owns the Sunday Times 
at that time owned uh, Sky News and, of course, uh, Fox News as well. And Andrew Neil in the 1980s and early 1990s was known as Rupert Murdoch's Rottweiler. Very strange that he then worked for the BBC and everybody says the BBC is left wing, but there we are. Mm. That's really interesting because, I mean, even if, you know, even if you take him at his word that he does think the politics of GB News is now repulsive and he does think the politics of Fox News is now repulsive, you might then ask, this is the second time this has happened, Andrew Neil. This is the second time you've been used for your status and your stature to get going a media operation which ends up being uh, you know, a, an absolutely malicious force in society. H how many more times are you going to be used to such a, a malignant end? You know, you've got to ask, what are you doing with yourself? C could you not see this coming? I, I didn't know that that he had this this Fox News background background as well. He just keeps helping birth cancers into our media ecology. Um, what a legacy to have. We're going to go on to our next story after I make a shout out for financial support for Navarra Media. We, we don't have the £60 million to play with that GB News had, but I think we are a more sustainable organisation. And that is thanks to our very generous supporters. If you are already donating the equivalent of one hour's wage a month, we thank you so much. You are what makes this possible. If not, please do go to navarramedia.com slash support. Rupert Murdoch has announced plans to launch a new TV station in the UK. It will be called Talk TV and it will be fronted by Piers Morgan. Earlier in the year, News UK had scrapped plans for a TV station, but sources suggest Murdoch's mind was changed by the rise and fall of GB News. Apparently, the launch of GB News showed there was a market for right-wing television, if only it were done professionally. The fees involved in the tie-up with Piers Morgan remain unknown, but it's understood the cost is being shared across multiple Murdoch-owned platforms. A primetime weeknight show on Talk TV, which will also be broadcast on US streaming service Fox Nation and Sky News Australia. He will also have a column in The Sun, which will be reprinted in the New York Post and has signed a book deal with the Murdoch-owned Harper Collins. Morgan will also be hosting a series of true crime documentaries to be shown on Murdoch-owned channels across the globe. This is how Piers Morgan announced the news. I've gone home. Great to be rejoining Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation after 28 years, the place I started my media career with the boss who gave me my big first break. We're going to have a lot of fun. Do you think this signing of Piers Morgan by Rupert Murdoch is going to make Talk TV a success where GB News failed? Great question. You have to be fair with Piers Morgan. I mean, he's, he's a terrible human being. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that he was by a very long stretch the most effective journalist in the country when it came to covering COVID-19. He was really good. He was really forensic. He was very entertaining. Um, and so on stuff like, you know, social liberties, trans rights, LGBT rights, sort of anti-left stuff. The Meghan Markle stuff, yeah, clearly he's just an idiot. And, and, and I'm sure Murdoch wants that too, the kind of bigoted right-wing stuff. But he also is he's also a very good, entertaining journalist on, on popular issues. I mean, he did a very similar thing when he was at the Daily Mirror. He was the editor. He, he captured a big part of the zeitgeist in terms of opposition to the war, which is ultimately why he was sacked, because he published on the front page of the newspaper images that were ultimately proven to be false. They weren't real images, but of course there were things going on like we saw in those images, but they just didn't happen to be accurate. So uh, interesting guy, you know, he's, he's been the best journalist when it comes to COVID-19 by a long way. At the same time, as he sort of insinuates there, his career started at News International. He was the bizarre columnist at the Sun, Michael. He was a gossip columnist, a showbiz gossip columnist. I think he still is in many ways, not much more than that. Uh, but, I, but I think he is, he is clearly a big get, you know, he is, he is a big name. He's he's big in the US. He's big here. He's got a big social media footprint. I think if you were going to launch a TV channel around somebody and it was to appeal to a right-wing audience, I think he's he's a good bet. I think Andrew Neil is a bit older. Um, I think he's a bit more sort of, you know, wonky inside politics, Westminstery. And I think, you know, Piers Morgan likes the more culture wars stuff. Uh, yeah, I think Piers Morgan could have a YouTube channel where he does interviews and videos and so on. It could do super well. It could be super big. I think he's a, he's a, he's a big personality. So I can see why Murdoch's done it. Um, but for me, Michael, what's really strange is you look at talk radio, you look at Times Radio, um, 
you look at this kind of this, this space where he's clearly it's clearly going to be a very low budget TV station, Michael. This kind of hybrid podcast video aesthetic, I suspect. And when I say low budget, I mean low budget for mainstream media. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, why would you have talk radio if you've also got this? Why would you have Times Times Radio? So it feels like there's a bit too much going on. Is that because there's just no strategy and he's throwing as much stuff as he possibly can and hopes something sticks? I mean, I feel personally that talk radio is a bit of a failure. And when you talked about the introduction for Piers Morgan then, I mean, it really just shows. Rupert Murdoch is just a machine for, for lies and hate and misinformation. Radio stations, newspapers, TV channels, and even a book publisher. So you'll have your book published with HarperCollins. It'll be reviewed uh, in the Sunday Times. And you'll be interviewed on talk radio and times radio. Uh, it's a whole media ecology, which is basically the Murdoch sphere. Um, very, very concerning. Clearly, in a, in a democracy, you shouldn't have somebody with that much media power and political influence. Uh, but I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a, a success by any measure, because I think trying to make money out of news media in this country has always been very difficult, particularly in television. Sky has lost millions every year for decades. So I don't think this is about making money. I think this is about trying to exert political influence in a world where the sun is less influential, in a world where the times is less influential, and in a world where, quite frankly, Times Radio, Talk Radio have kind of failed. Mm. No, I, I think the, the important thing there is that this probably isn't about money. So, I mean, it, it's, it's probably the case that, that Rupert Murdoch has deeper pockets than whoever funded GB News, and although actually they, they had some big deep pockets as well. But Rupert Murdoch, I mean, I think this will be more likely to be successful because Piers Morgan is a bigger draw than Andrew Neil. And also because even though talk radio is pretty shoddy, it's just sort of like the, you know, the ugly sibling of LBC, uh, they at least have some experience, you know, th th they're kind of working their way up towards a TV channel in a way, aren't they? Whereas GB mm. News really tried to create it out of nothing. So you would have had a load of producers and, and journalists and people in front of the camera who just really weren't on the same page, which is why the whole thing's been a catastrophic mess. Whereas with this talk TV thing, it will have grown out of an organization where you do have people on the same malicious page. It's, you know, it's a really malicious page, all in the same building. You've got talk radio, which is Julia Hartley Brewer trying to, you know, sow doubt about COVID-19, lockdowns don't work, I'm going to break all of the rules, saying some really nasty thing about nasty things about trans people then in the same building you've got the times radio people who are trans. oh we're proper journalists and and we're really um cultured and and we're the respectable people who you can get on you know on your tv ch channels or whatever the whole thing i find it very very unpleasant this is just going to be one more you know element of that murdoch empire which has been so pernicious for so long and i think you know i worry it is going to continue to be because he keeps shape-shifting as the tabloid industry goes down the drain he's trying to reinvent the organization as as a tv channel grown out of these yes not incredibly successful but somewhat influential radio shows do you think am i being overly worried i think look i think you're right michael i think here's some good news uh, and that is that rupert murdoch is going to die uh, he's an old man <laughs> he's not going to be around forever i think he's in his early 90s now really mid 80s yeah. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't wish anybody death. I don't. But he, the, the brutal reality is he's an older man and he's not going to be around for very long. He's 90. And even his own... Yeah, he's 90. So he, and even his own son, James Murdoch, has distanced himself from his father when it comes to climate change. You know, even his own family don't really like the guy uh, when it comes to quite key political dividing lines. So that's the good news. You know, he will die quite soon. Um, of course, he has some of the best healthcare in the world. He'll probably, he'll probably live into his early hundreds. Fine. Um, I hope he enjoys, you know, what he has left of his life with Jerry Hall, even though he is arguably the most toxic person um, in, 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 in the English-speaking world in terms of making our politics and public life worse and rotten over the last couple of decades. It's, I think he, he is number one. He's numero uno, no, no doubt about it. But often you hear the retort, well, you know, it's not the person, it's their ideas. And when they pass away, somebody else will take their place. I don't, I don't really buy that with Rupert Murdoch. He's a very singular figure when you're talking about the rise and, and, and mass appeal of these ideas, these bigotries. Since he first entered the UK news market in the late 1960s, uh, when he bought the news of the world. And of course, that shut down for, for very disgusting reasons. That should have been the end of him, really. Uh, but it wasn't 10 years ago. So... I, I see where you're coming from, Michael, but he's made a lot of bad calls commercially and politically in the last 
20 years. MySpace is obviously the most memorable one. It feels like the last big hit of his was really Fox News. The Sunday Times has undergone a bit of a reinvention. They've kind of gone back to what they were. Well, they're trying to go back to what they were pre-Andrew Neil. Quality paper, you know, good reporting, long-form investigations. Now, Andrew Neil will say, well, we always had that when I was there. The point was you were getting rid of it constantly. It was You were filing it down with a bit of sandpaper. So I'm optimistic when it comes to this stuff, Michael. I think, I think we have major problems in the UK media landscape because of billionaires. That's not going away. But this particular billionaire... You know, I don't think he exerts anything like the political influence he did, say, 10, 15 years ago, but I think the mid-1990s fundamentally. Both major political parties felt they had to listen to him on every single issue. I think that's just gone. Uh, you look at what the Tor Tories just did on national insurance, you know, and, you know, Rupert Murdoch would not have supported that. You look at what Labour's talking about with regards to increasing minimum wage. Rupert Murdoch wouldn't support that. And I think as that sort of neoliberal consensus collapses and both parties address it in different ways, sadly, the Tories are doing that better, more quickly, more effectively than Labour. Ultimately, if Labour want to ever win an election ever again, they're going to have to do the same thing. I think that's a problem for, for Rupert Murdoch. He's, he's fixed to that thing. He's fixed to that economic model with a kind of a big right-wing turn on, on immigration and social issues. You can't really have that. The economic model is the thing that ultimately people want change for. You can talk about immigration and refugees and get them angry about it. But if you're at the same time saying we're not going to do anything about wages or pensions or stagnating living standards, they aren't going to like you. So I'm, I'm not optimistic generally, but I think with Rupert Murdoch, look, he's going to probably be dead in the next 10 years. We should celebrate when that happens, Michael. Again, I don't say that very often. I hope this is being recorded and somebody puts it on social media. Rupert Murdoch is uniquely toxic in creating a depraved media environment in our country. I'll go on to uh, a story which was breaking as we were live. We've talked on tonight's show about David Evans' habit of spuriously launching disciplinary investigations against members. Last week, we talked about how the chair of Young Labour got caught in that net. And now, apparently, a left-wing MP has also been subject to these spurious investigations which fall apart under the smallest bit of scrutiny. Um, it's Kate Osborne. She was one of the 2019 intake, as I say, on the left of the party. And she has tweeted the following statement. Without warning this morning, the Labour Party served me with a notice of investigation making serious allegations of breach of the party rules. I was shocked and unnerved by getting such a letter and was puzzled at what the party was saying about me. I thought my job as an MP was on the line and that I faced public shaming in front of my constituents, as some will always say there's no smoke without fire. Well, there is. The charges were completely baseless. The evidence relied on made no sense. There never was anything that was a breach of the rules. I was told I could not discuss the matter with anyone except Samaritans. Luckily, I had access to immediate legal advice and my solicitor wrote a very strongly worded letter utterly rejecting the allegations. Shortly after the legal letter, the party withdrew the investigation, claiming it was an administrative error and apologised for the mistake and the distress it had caused. I had been put through a very worrying ordeal for no valid reason whatsoever. She goes on. What does this say about an apparent mission to threaten members with expulsion from their own party? There is little, if any, consideration being given to the impact on members of receiving such threatening letters. An apology after the event is one thing, but the effect is awful. How many members have had similar letters but do not have access to specialist legal advice? I am one of the fortunate ones, but how many others are left stewing whilst ill-considered baseless allegations are rained down upon them. It is time for a serious rethink by those running the governance and legal unit about what they are doing to members. I have decided to speak out because if they come after elected MPs with baseless claims, they will come after others. We need a serious look at ourselves and what is happening to our party. I'd like to thank everyone who has supported me throughout this very difficult day, particularly my union, Unite. Wow. Aaron. This is exactly the same as, as that investigation they launched into the chair of Young Labour, it seems. The same thing has been done to Kate Osborne MP, where they sort of send a spurious letter saying we're starting an investigation. The Labour Party is challenged on it, and the Labour Party said, oh, it's an administrative error. As if disciplinary investigations are someone hitting the wrong button. You know, it, it just seems like the party machine is completely out of control. Well, Michael, I'm very sad that you haven't mentioned I broke this story, actually, shortly before... Uh... Surely before uh, Kate Osborne tweeted that, uh, oh, uh, you know, it's, you should have uh, told me a bit of. Well, I mean, we were going live shortly before, so uh, shortly after, rather. I mean, I think I, I tweeted this about half an hour earlier. Um, I knew a bit earlier on, 
but I, I hadn't seen any documentary evidence. And uh, I can I can tell our audience tonight the reason that she was being investigated is because she said to Rebecca Long Bailey when she was suspended, solidarity. That was her offence. That was it. Wow. Was it. Well, Rebecca Long Bailey also was never suspended, right? So that was when <clears throat> Rebecca Long Bailey had to resign from the front bench. So that wasn't a suspension. Yeah. No. She, and she, well, I don't, well, I don't believe she was investigated. I mean, maybe she was, but <clears throat> which, which, which is an important point, Michael, because a lot of people said that. Is every single person who said solidarity to Rebecca Long Bailey when she lost her position in the shadow front bench, is every single person now under investigation? Uh, and you said it's an organization out of control. I think it's actually worse than that. It's not the organization here. I think this is rogue elements within the organization that are out of control. This is the very same day where the Labour's NEC implemented rule changes, which basically are, are, are the EHRC recommendations about what the disciplinary process should look like. They've changed the rules to basically integrate those into the party. The very same day where they sort of talk about, oh, we're creating an independent disciplinary structure and Annalise uh, Dodds is saying that, you know, we're going to deal with this terrible issue. The very same day, her own colleague is contacted and told that she's going to be investigated. She doesn't know by who. I don't think it's by the uh, by GLUE, the Governance and Legal Unit. Presumably, like with Jess Barnard, it's just rogue elements close to Lotto, close to the leader's office and David Evans and Keir Starmer. And she kicks back and then they disappear. Is this another error? You know, so we, we clearly this is the complete opposite of an independent complaints process, clearly. And I think it is really important, Michael. I think obviously the EHRC don't care. Obviously they don't care. But I think somebody needs to say, look, this is clearly not compliant with the recommendations you laid out in the report, clearly. You know, we're not just talking about, you know, um, Bill and Ben, two local members up the road who sit, sit over, you know, a pint in the dog and duck and have a, a couple of lagers. This is the head of Young Labour and Labour Party MP. And I think there are many, many more. It's just that it's not public knowledge yet. Is this about intimidating the left? Absolutely. Does it show that there's effectively no discipline in the party's disciplinary process? Absolutely. Is Keir Starmer or David Evans going to do anything about it? No, nothing at all. And I, I don't think it's going to stop. Uh, this is just about quotidian wearing people down to get them out. That's the whole point of this, Michael. And I think the thing that really disgusted me the most is saying you can't tell anybody, but you can talk to the Samaritans about it if you're feeling suicidal. I mean, this is abusive behavior, Michael. This is abusive behavior. If an employer said this to a member of staff, people on the left, socialists, even center-left melts who think Keir Starmer is the, you know, the best thing since sliced bread, would say, what an appalling employer. People like Ian Dunn or James O'Brien would say, what a terrible employer. Are they going to do the same thing now? Because it's become the default in Keir Starmer's Labour Party. Presumably they're not because they, they happen to agree politically with the guy. So we have a double standing going on. I think it's just remarkable. I mean, Christ, you think these people are going to change the, the labour market in the interest of working people when they treat their own people like this? When they lay off workers and uh, impose redundancies and don't consult? And when they have MPs, their colleagues in Parliament treated like trash? No. Judge people what they do, not by what they say. We've got some comments on this, Saul, with a fiver. Solidarity Kate Osborne MP. Coincidence that the Labour investigation into her was withdrawn straight after her solicitor wrote the party a letter. Obviously not a coincidence. And this is you know, really important to mention because this is the same as, as what happened with Jess Barnard, which is that they only withdrew the investigation after, in her case, she tweeted about it and it got a lot of traction from people with, with lots of followers. Um, in this case, it only got withdrawn after a, a solicitor's letter was sent. And I think what this tells us is that this is just the tip of the iceberg. These spurious investigations, these spurious suspensions are happening everywhere to hundreds and hundreds of, of Labour members. And many of them won't have the clout on, on Twitter as the chair of Young Labour or won't have a solicitor as good as an elected MP. You know, these are, you know, the most significant important roles you can really have in the Labour Party, an MP or a chair of one of its you know, constituent organisations. And these people are getting these letters. There will be loads, loads, loads more people getting these letters who are not in such a strong position to resist them. And I, I think this does just show us, you know, what a, what a disastrous state the Labour Party is, is currently in. Um, also, thanks to Mary Dwyer for a £10 super chat and everyone else for your donations this evening. Um, Aaron Bastani, any final comments before we go? Yeah, I had one more thing I wanted to mention, Michael, which is I have been told about somebody who's being investigated for tweeting anti-Semitic material. Would you like to know what the anti-Semitic material is? Yeah, go on. Me, when I tweeted about Ed Balls, he was, he was questioning whether or not Jeremy Corbyn was anti-Semitic. And I tweeted basically something like, this you, with him wearing a Nazi uniform while he was at university. 
somebody retweeted that, and apparently they've now been investigated for anti-Semitism because they have a, they have a problem about Ed Balls wearing a Nazi uniform, and they think that might be not not that's probably a bad thing. We should probably talk about that, right? But if you even tweet the image, apparently that's now tantamount to racism. They're being investigated for it. Hundreds of people like this, and like you say, if you've not got recourse to good legal advice. You're going to get stitched up. It's just disgusting, Michael. And I think fundamentally, do you want people who behave like that running the country? I don't. When it comes to civil liberties, the rule of law, they'll be worse than the Tories. Of course they will be. Labour in the mid-2000s were. It's the exact same people. Peter Mandelson, David Evans, and so on. So deeply concerning. We don't want these people running the, the criminal justice system. Are you kidding me? Terrible. If you have a vote at Labour Party conference, do vote no uh, for David Evans being confirmed as General Secretary. Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure speaking to you as always on a Friday evening. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for your super chats and for watching tonight. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.